Welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange Podcast. Stories by leaders for leaders to help you raise the bar on your own excellence to release the potential inside of you. Now, here's today's podcast. Greetings, everyone. We're doing a live recording as we do on Tuesday nights for the nonprofit chat. You may be watching us live on Facebook or the webinar, or you might be listening to the podcast, the nonprofit chat. We have an energy feel filled evening for you. This is going to be, we're going to talk till we're done. We're usually done before an hour or less, but the man on this call tonight is Stephen Rowell. Russell Dennis is back with me, his co-host, and we'll we'll interview Stephen. And he he and I have gotten acquainted. We were connected through a mutual friend, and we've got a lot of synergies in what we believe in and what we do and our experiences. But Stephen, tell us about this experience with uh, Mickey Mouse and that part of your history, and then take it forward and tell us what you do today. Sure. Thank you so much for having me. So. First things, I thought about the title for tonight's talk to be Mickey Mouse in the Boardroom, or what would be different if Disney ran your board, kind of like the uh, book if Disney ran your hospital. So basically, I spent almost eight years at Walt Disney World. <clears throat> Pardon me. Almost eight years in Walt Disney World in Orlando, and I opened five resort hotels, worked in Disney University, the training division, worked in human resources, and really fell in love with organizational development. So I ended my career in the organizational development group, which was a part of Disney University and Disney Institute. And so I come from an operations background. I'm a serial entrepreneur. But what's really exciting about tonight is my father was an assistant dean of a very nice um, university in Texas. And my mother was a school teacher, believe it or not. And they were so civically minded my whole life. And so I grew up just as a, as a norm as if everybody did it with the notion that mom and dad were always gone in the evenings (laughs) at board meetings and volunteering and so on. So I think that's where it all started for me. But when I left Disney, I ended up having a couple more entrepreneurial successes and worked in corporate life. But what's happened is over the last 20 years, my wife and I have been drawn to organizations in South Africa and there are three of them specifically, and they all do different things. One is sustainable support for an entire village, and the others are helping AIDS orphans in South Africa. So I really come tonight with not only a spirit for nonprofits, but also as a change management consultant, what I've been doing is not only serving on boards myself and participating in what we would call train wreck meetings and <laughs> seeing some of the most dysfunctional groups, but I've also been privileged both in terms of tiny, tiny, very small startup nonprofits as well as gigantic, big, huge named organizations. I've been able to see what works and that's what I'm excited about sharing with you just to see. It's really not about me. It's about what I've seen that really works around the country. Well, um, Russell and I are what we call in Center Vision Leadership Foundation, which is a 501c3. Um, we are what we call wayfinders. <clears throat> we're we're coming full circle from the consultant, the answer man, to the wayfinder, the partner who has good questions. But we actually empower and enable people. And part of our methodology is running power packed meetings. And as a conductor, you never saw a conductor use an agenda for a meet for a rehearsal. 
So we we were we uh, we do away with silly things like the word agenda, and we focus on deliverables. So you and I are going to have some lively conversation, and we've moved away from the consultant model. Um, I went through a phase where I decided the consultant would become an insultant, and then I moved to resultant. But really, in my persona, it's about the interaction, the integration of strategy and performance. So. You spent some really good years with Disney. Then you went up, uh, where was that? Was that in California or in Florida? It was in Florida, and then I ended up in the Northeast. Uh-huh. And you're in Pennsylvania now. Yes. And I've been for, I was going to come here for three years, do grad school, and leave. And now we have, I've been married 15 years. I have a 13-year-old boy and a golden doodle and a corgi, and the rest is history, as they say. Life, life goes Zoom. Now, um, Anything else you want to say? I interrupted you there about yourself before we get into some of the hard content here. No, I think that's great. I'm just excited to be here and answer questions and serve in any way I can. I took your title verbatim. Termites destroying your board, question mark. How to exterminate board dysfunction once and for all. And then um, we're talking about getting more done in less time. You're speaking, singing my song, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Greater impact and lasting results. So um, now you said you've participated in nonprofit boards for quite a while. Um, Part of the expertise Russ and I have is working with boards, helping them build a culture of high performance. What has been your experience as you have do you work externally with boards or have you just sat on boards as a, as a board person? I've sat on boards and then as a consultant, I helped a couple of the nonprofits in South Africa who were both 501c3 American based as well as South African based organizations. I helped them from the ground up really just get crystal clear about their mission. What were they going to focus on? What were they not going to focus on? That brings up one of the key points for me, which is, So often I see people struggle with saying no, and then they wonder why their board is sitting there with 17 items on their strategic plan and all of that. So I was trying to help those two organizations simply benefit from the beginning. And I'm excited to share that one of those organizations is now 14 years old, and they now have over 25 homes for AIDS orphans in South Africa, which is exciting. That is very exciting. you said in passing, um, picked up on the term change management consultant. What, is, um, what does that mean? For us, change management consulting is coming alongside senior leaders, organizations, nonprofits, CEOs, C-suite groups, and helping them in a few different ways. But one is, what are the best practices to get adoption and people to embrace the change, not be afraid of it, obviously push through their fear, but really how to implement change that is not so painful through the first year of the introduction, but also then what sticks and what lasts and what makes it really work. And we really focus on three different parts of it. I mean, there's the organization, the larger organization, there's the group component, and then there's the individual and the leadership piece. And what I would say is where we spend most of our time with nonprofit boards is acknowledging the cultural norms and the cultural realities of what they're dealing with in terms of 
what I'm, what I'm talking about is the cultural norms as it relates to who the board members are and the board leaders and what they're bringing into the room. Call it bias, call it cultural norms. There's that piece of it. Then there's organizationally what the organization wants to do. And then there's the people stuff. And so we really work on that triangle of the organization, the group and the, and the people and try as best we can to help people start from a place of humility, which is we don't know what we don't know. So we really try to start from a very humble place. So the triangle is the organization, yep. the people, and I forgot the other one. And then culture. Culture. In other words, what is the culture? So as an example, a charity that's based in South Africa, I'll give you a great example. What South African colleges, universities consider a graduate degree skilled proficient educator or teacher would not even would barely be equal to an undergraduate bachelor's degree American professional in education oh my goodness so there's a great example going globally is that South Africans will talk about the challenges they have and the challenges they have and why their teachers are struggling and struggling and then when you bring Americans or Europeans over to help they are kind of aghast at saying, wait, you're talking about basic blocking and tackling issues like teacher 101. So what we've learned on the global stage is, and why we really start with the humility piece is, and I could go on and on, I could write a book about this piece, but what we've really experienced in Africa, in the African continent, Southern Africa, is the notion, and we're now about 15 years through this journey, but this notion, and, and it's not to offend anybody, but this notion of white American faith-based organizations getting in an airplane, landing in Africa and saying, we have the solution. And friends of ours have spent the last 11 years starting their own nonprofit organizations in Africa. And what they've discovered is, and there are now two or three books already written about this, but it's the notion of, no, let's show up as first world human beings and let's simply ask, what do you need? instead of saying we have all the solutions and the organizations in Africa, Southern Sub-Saharan Africa that are American based and European based that have done that have found far greater success and far less challenge up front. That is so spot on with uh, our center vision philosophy. What do you think of that Russ? I think that's marvelous. And that's kind of my philosophy when I go in to work with people, I ask a lot of questions and, Something I kind of picked up as an IRS agent. It's, it's almost like Columbo. You ask questions so, like you're a second grader and keep asking until it gets clear. And the more you can get people to talk about themselves, they actually, a lot of times, give themselves their own answer because they talk. They talk it through. So my, my whole gig is to pull the genius out of people that's already there. Yeah. You, Rush, you would have a really great conversation with my consulting partner, Dennis McAtee, who has dedicated his life with this whole thing. He's the drama-free guy, and he wrote oh, yeah. The Eight Qualities of Drama-Free Teams. And he really focuses a lot of his time on how to ask better questions. That's the secret of good coaching of, of what we do as Wayfinders. Speaking yeah. of, you mentioned books in that. Um, Russ, he's, got, he's, got, he's prolific, and he's got a lot of books. Um, he's written the five minute secret, how to connect with anyone anywhere at any time. 
You've uh, success from the inside out. Clean is not enough. You're a good title guy. And then you've co-authored a book, Jumpstart Your Creativity. You're, um, you know, some people are boring with titles, but you got it down. You know how to do an interesting title. And Stephen, it's S-T-E-V-E-N-R-O-W-E-L-L. Um, I link to you on the um, nonprofitchat.org page so people can go to your website and see your, your books. I'm excited about the, um, the uh, Synergy. By the way, I named our company Synervision. It's the Synergy of the Common Vision. So there's so much, there's so much resonance in what you're talking about and what we stand for. So let's talk about boards. As, as this change management consultant, and I think I heard you say for 20 years you've served on boards and helped nonprofits, and you, and you, I know you've helped them be more effective at what they're, they're trying to do. You've actually helped them get there. What do you see as the overarching challenge when um, board members and nonprofit leaders are struggling? Well, to start off kind of the big umbrella, the big idea for me, and it's, it's really just the synthesis of my life journey. This doesn't mean that anything I'm about to say is right or wrong. It's just from a change management perspective and having been this child of two teachers and a father who was a Socratic teacher who really just asked me questions constantly. <laughs> um, from that lens, what I would say is it starts with this. Boards that struggle, no matter how big, how complex or how simple they are, boards that struggle tend to fail in what I call the overarching idea of living community. And what I mean by that is within that notion of living in a mission-based volunteer world and wanting to make a difference and increase, you know, make a bigger impact, the notion of authentic, genuine, open communication, having the trust and the managerial courage to deal with tough issues failing forward. A lot of that safety and trust is absent in the boards that struggle with community. And I know you all know this, your experts far better than me in terms of helping boards with the vast experience you all have had, but I think you would agree, you go to one meeting of a board and halfway through or a third of the way through the meeting, you and I pretty much have a sense of what the culture is as it relates to community. And one of the most powerful examples, and I'm sharing this simply hoping that this will get somebody thinking about themselves as they're listening to this. Just think about who you are and how you show up. But I'll share with you, there's an organization I've worked with that is 20 years old, and just recently a big, big name billionaire family has joined the organization. And because of the absence of the tools that I'm going to talk about tonight, hopefully that we'll get to, or the effective managerial courage and leadership to drive it, guess what's happened in the last year and a half? The organization has made massive strategic shifts, not because the group wanted to with consensus, but because the big billion dollar family wanted to do it. They've now expanded, as an example, using operational financials, 50% of their entire annual fund is now deployed in new strategies. Why? Because it happens to be near where the homes and the properties are that are owned by the billion dollar family. Wow. So all of a sudden, <clears throat> you see this massive dysfunction of 
one family comes in, but because they're billionaires and they're so powerful, the cultural norms of avoiding difficult conversations and conflict. And so what's happened is as, as, as big hearted and as well-meaning as that family is, it's become dysfunctional. And you're now seeing, you're ready for this. You're seeing donations go down. They just did an Indiegogo kind of campaign was not as successful as the past ones. You've seen volunteerism go down in terms of rated by the number of days that people volunteer in the organization on a routine basis. And they've lost three people that were members of the board's drum roll who were involved in the board for 10 years <laughs> and have now exited in the last four months. So one of my passions is helping the original founder of the nonprofit and the chairman or president, whatever they want to call it, be skilled enough that when that train is coming down the track, they can have at least better skills than most when they see that train coming, they can assess and determine, okay, is this train going to run us over or is this train going to pick us up and take us to someplace really special? I really think that's the secret. You're in, and I'll let Russ weigh in here in a minute, but in my 31 years experience, I see very, very few boards, if any, that function up to the expectations of the leader or even to their own expectations. You take really good people who are really successful in their lives and you put them on a nonprofit board and you probably, and you, you put, put tape on their mouth and you tie their hands, so to speak, because yep. the system itself does not promote all the good stuff that you just articulated. And mm -hmm. so the culture is so key. A couple of the, I'd like you to comment a couple of methodologies that we use at Center Vision. We have people weigh in on a board covenant. What is it they promise to each other? And it's really interesting what people come up with. And then they, that's basically their commitment to each other as a peer-to-peer -peer accountability. All too often, the leader feels like they've got to hold everybody accountable, whether it's the board chair or the, or the executive director or whatever. They think it's all revolving around them making things happen. When sure. really, if, if the culture creates the standards, they're going to enforce them. The other piece we go into is what I call guiding principles. How do we, and uh, I, I don't know this, but experiencing Disney from the outside, it's really clear that their principles for their employees, how they make decisions is very clear. We're the guest. They're always going to help us. You ask somebody sweeping the streets a question, they'll take you there. They can answer the question. So Southwest Airlines is a hospitality company. You know, companies like that have a very clear set of guiding principles so they know how they're supposed to function. I don't find either uh, a covenant or an operation guide of how we're going to function as a team or how we're going to make decisions as a team with your guiding principles. What do you, how do you Bingo. weigh in on those? Bingo. And that last one you just mentioned, how we're going to make decisions and the authority and all that, that is gigantic. And it's, it's the piece where the failure comes because of the absence of all of this. So what I would share with you very quickly is this, the Disney version of that, is safety, courtesy, show, and efficiency. And it's in that order. Van Nunn was a consultant that helped Walt Disney in the 1950s figure all of this out before Disneyland opened in 1955 in California. And the concept was safety is first. Without safety, you don't have anything if it's going to be a theme park. Courtesy, safety, courtesy, show, we're all part of the magic, we're all part, we're on stage, that whole thing. 
And then the last one was efficiency. The secret here, and this is my gift to everybody, is you could never, an hourly cast member could never, I'll give you a great example. You had to get 1,800 guests an hour through the Haunted Mansion, through the attraction. But all of a sudden, let's say we had 19 guests in the last hour that were in wheelchairs, wheelchair-bound guests. And so we had to slow down that conveyor belt because Haunted Mansion is loaded with a conveyor belt. And so all of a sudden, you start looking at your numbers in the control center, and you see that you're not going to make your 1,800 number per hour. Well, the fourth value, not the first, is efficiency. So here was the secret. To your point, hourly cast members were raised from the – I used to teach – Traditions, the first three days of new hire orientation at Disney University. And what we would teach is you can never go out of order. It's safety first, courtesy, show, and efficiency. So you could never be rude to guests or hold back people that needed assistance to enter that attraction because you were trying to get your number. Well, that hierarchy of thinking is exactly what you're talking about. And so if 16-year-old kids who sit at home and never say anything to mom and dad at the dinner table all of a sudden, that same 16-year-old kid, and this is the point, this 16-year-old kid is now at Disney World, and he understands safety, courtesy, show, and efficiency. And then here's the bigger one. We sell happiness is what we trained all of the new hires to understand. Backstage, we sell happiness. What we do, the way we do that, the way we sell happiness, is we create magic. And so the standard, which is the covenant so there's guiding principles, and then they have your covenant. So as an example, using the covenant language, one of the standards was consistently seek out guest contact. Now, those words were all very definitive and intentional. Consistently, not just when you want to, seek out. Don't let the guest wash over you. You seek them out. Make eye contact. And then consistently seek out guest contact. So to wrap all of that up, what I would share with you, and this has carried into my own consulting in just my own life, even as a, as a parent and as a husband, I've thought about what are the standards that I want to live by? What are those behaviors that I want to be committed to? So here's an example of how powerful this is. You have this 16-year-old that sits at home and never says a word or never looks up from their phone. Yeah, dad, uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh. But then you put them in the culture at Walt Disney World, and what happens? They see a father in the Magic Kingdom walking with an Epcot Center guidebook and the same 16-year-old kid walks up and goes, oh, hi, are you headed over to Epcot Center later this evening? Are you going to see Illuminations, the fireworks show? And they say, yes, how did you know? Well, that's the secret. That's the magic. The guest doesn't realize that this kid has been taught. If you're in the Magic Kingdom in front of the castle and you see a father or a mother with an Epcot Center guidebook, that's an opportunity for magic. So what the kid says is, hey, would you like to know the secret best place to go inside the World Showcase? to see the fireworks <laughs> sure that'd be great so what happens then to wrap all of that up it's so funny i still get goosebumps telling you all that but <laughs> hey everybody <laughs> it's mickey mouse wow so from that what you know you, you can take the person out of disney but you can't take the disney out of the person but what i would share with you is absolutely part of the secret of disney is safety courtesy show and efficiency we sell happiness, we create magic. Then there's the standard of the covenant, consistently seek out guest contact. And then here's the big one. We also then teach the why to the cast member to understand, you know why you're doing this. You know what magic is. And so the last piece on this, and we'll move on is, for me on this, on the Disney benchmark, is 
then showing them ways that they can make magic. So you see a family walking through the park with a camera. You'll see teenage cast members run up to that family and say, sir, can I take the picture for you so that you can be in it? Well, why is that such a treasured thing to do at working at Disney World? It's because when you're new hire, we would tell story after story after story that the Christmas card, the Hanukkah card, is going to be the picture of the family. And in the old days, this will date me in terms of how old I am, but it used to be American families spent 36 rolls of film in one trip at Disney World. Oh, my goodness. And they would get home, and the average of most families, there'd be three pictures of the whole family in the entire 36 rolls of film. Ah. So then to wrap all this up, what we do is we would teach that – the Christmas card, the Hanukkah card, the Kwanzaa card is going to be that picture of the whole family at Disney World. The one that's huge today is now when you go to a funeral and grandpa has passed away and now the tradition in America at least is you go to the funeral and what do they have? They have pictures up on an easel. Well, at the time we had 81,000 guest letters, 81,000 guest letters of people writing in saying four months after we were at Disney World, my grandfather died. And I just want you to know that the picture we had at the memorial service was the picture in front of Splash Mountain. And just wanted to say thank you to the kid Skip who took the picture that day in front of Splash Mountain. What is the, magic, the magic was then to go, go back as a company and find Skip and say, you made magic. That's lovely. What if we had that same mindset? I um, We use the word nonprofit and I'm, <clears throat> I hate that word because we dumb down to the, we got to make profit. We start dumbing down to the lowest common denominator. But what if we were able to, and we, we settle for less than excellent. We settle for less than efficient. We settle for less than safety. I mean, we settle for less than any of those. What, what gift do you have to inspire board members? Because I think it's, it's up to the board members to step up and say, I want to do better. I, great, great, great question. One of the ways that I think you can really help these volunteer board members as well as leaders, whether it's a leader of a committee or the president of the chairman is to make it personal. And here's what I mean. One of the things, 1100 hospitals have licensed my patient satisfaction program. And one of the things that both Quint Studer from the Studer group and myself really made famous in hospitals was behavior standards. So one of the things I would give you as an example, and I made a few lists, a few items here. Imagine your covenants, go back to what you said, Hugh. Imagine if you had these covenants for those board members that you're speaking to. What if the standard was in terms of excellence? So we're talking about how to maintain excellence and how to inspire them to that. So here's some examples. What if the standard was no triangulation? Oh, ho. oh, ho. if the banker is upset with the CPA, who's upset with the multimillionaire retired business owner, who's upset with the school teacher, and you have all the baggage and all the crap, pardon me, that goes with those labels in our society. No, 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 it doesn't matter if you're the CPA, the bank president, it doesn't matter who you are, the issue is no triangulation. Well, what's that mean? If you have an issue with anybody, you go to them, you don't run to me. Or the chairman or the president says, if you do have an issue, come to me to check in. That's fine. I can help you navigate, facilitate. And that's where your wayfinding is so brilliant in terms of what you're teaching. And 
let me help you have a successful constructive conversation. So that's one, but I'll give you a couple others. Um, take 100% responsibility for everything you do and everything you say. Oh, yeah. Well, take 100% responsibility. That's a success principle that Jack Canfield is really focused on. Another one is um, keep your agreements. Oh, my. So what's really neat is if you, if you think about language, so be humble at all times. Um, remember, we don't know what we, I don't know what I don't know. The humility piece. Um, managerial courage is caring enough to say, caring enough about the other person to say something to not cower away. And then embracing failing forward. And then the big one that's always so cliche is mission first. Well, what does that mean? <laughs> right? So that's what I would do is I would say, if you don't care about triangulation, then you're not going to achieve excellence. If you don't care about taking 100% responsibility, I mean, it could be as simple as the person in the role of secretary is supposed to have the notes and the minutes of the meeting sent out by the next morning because we're all busy people. But everybody talks for years now that the secretary gets them out about Thursday or Friday, the week after the week after the meeting's over. So now what I've opened up to you, which we don't really have time to go there, but is what do you do then when those types of behaviors fester, which is against the standard of excellence? And that's where I think boards fail and where they struggle is in the moments of difficulty and the moments of failure. But I think the standards is where you have to start. You have to have the language. You have to start somewhere. And you have to wiggle your spinal cord. Yeah, we're in the same, we're same place. And a lot of this, the, the, um, the leader lets it happen. We think it's going to go away. I, I wrote, um, I have an ebook out on Amazon, um, um, creating healthy teams. And it's all about this intervention piece of, of managing conflict. Um, Russ, in your, your work with the uh, Indian Reservation and some of the charities, um, what do you, what do you want to tag here? This brilliant stuff that he's given us tonight. This is all really excellent stuff. And it's got, uh, he's preaching to the choir here. One of the things that I find with nonprofit leaders, I know in my case, I work some insane hours. Mm -hmm. And you get a few drivers that are dedicated and they don't take care of themselves. And they burn out as a result, you know. And uh, you have to have an open communication where you can have those tough conversations with the board or, or, uh, or course correct. Uh, you know, when, when things weren't necessarily going well with a project, uh, mm -hmm. Folks didn't want to talk about it because they wanted to look good for the funding sources. And so right. it's best to, if you have some sort of problems, you got to be transparent and talk about those problems as quickly as you can, as early as you can, even if it's just discomfort. You need to be able to go to your leaders and say, well, I'm a little bit uncomfortable and not sweep it under the rug. So mm -hmm. a lot of this is just, uh, it's just having those conversations, and that's a culture piece. If you don't have that culture in place where you can do that, you're going to have some difficulties. And, uh, you know, the, this, what you also, what you were talking about was really building what, what I would call the solid foundation, which is step one of, uh, of the four steps for building a high performance nonprofit. And that's a process. I've got a process that I work people. Uh, and corporations through that I've, I've uh, 
I'm still fine tuning, but building that foundation is looking at what you have and what you need and being able to establish that communication and establish that culture and those ground rules. Because if you, it, it's easier when you start, uh, but you, you, you're probably used to going in being the change consultant uh, of going in and finding stuff in every state of <laughs> yeah. Yeah. operation. And it's fun. It's tricky, but you know, it, it's a lot of fun when you ask a lot of questions and you, you gently bring people to a place where they figure out the, that they don't know what they don't know. Yep. Nobody likes to be told there's something wrong with them, but I ask enough questions so that people are kind of, after a while, they're dropping these gems on themselves. And then once they come to that point, you can, you can continue that conversation and yeah. move forward. But it's tough to get there sometimes. There's a yeah. lot of conflict. And so how do you deal when you walk into some situations, you're going to find a massive amount of conflict because things have just kind of gone the way they've gone. Sure. How do you start off when you walk into these uh, situations where you got some strong personalities and a lot of Sure. Like bubbling under the surface because you've had this strong personality dominant. Sure. Well, there's a couple things. Um, there's a soft approach. It's, it's all about winning the war, not the battle, right? We all know that. And people, the one principle that guides us is people don't argue with their own data. So the magic of what you all are teaching with asking the better questions is you're helping people realize that when they make it their own and they identify it, they solve something their own problems like we talked about earlier. So a couple things I would share with you. The soft approach is I do behavioral styles training, whether it's platinum rule, disc, that kind of, there's true colors, Myers-Briggs, there's a bunch of tools out there. But for years I've been using Tony Alexander's platinum rule and it's basically four quadrant behavioral styles. It's a simpler, cleaner version of the Myers-Briggs, very complex one. So the concept is I start with, board leadership groups simply understanding, did you know that there are four statistically proven research-based for hundreds of years, all the way back to the Anishinaabes, who believe it or not, had an Indian wheel that was north, south, east, and west. It goes back thousands of years. Did you know that there's four styles? And did you know that those four styles, each one of them have a deep driving need? They also have a way they see the world and what they value in that world. And then they also have the one thing that is the risk or the, the what can be the weakness. And so the real principle for me there is teaching people any strength, any strength taken too far can become a weakness. And so the overuse of a strength as this group, uh, strength scope, which is a brilliant group um, strength scope. They've taken what Gallup did with strengths finder and they've taken it to a whole other level. Um, but it's strengths, plural scope. And the concept is the overuse of a skill. So that's the soft approach. But I'm going to share with you this. If I were to leave tomorrow, if I were to leave this fine earth tomorrow, what I'm about to say is the tool that I would hope people would embrace. And there's two versions. There's a very simple one. And then there's a complex one that has a process, but it's not that complex. And all of these tools are in the book, Success from the Inside Out, which, Hugh, what I wanted to share and Russ was one of the things I'd like to offer your group as a way to give back is to give them access to the PDF version of Success from the Inside Out because it was written as a personal action guide format. And so there's a chapter called What Makes the Disney Difference? And there's a chapter 
talking about um, behavioral standards. And there's this chapter that I want to talk about here. So very quickly, this is the concept. And this is the single most, Russ, this is the single most powerful exercise I've ever done. And if I need to level an organization or the CEO hires me in a, co a corporation and says, Stephen, I need you to just reach into the belly of this beast and wake my executives up. Here's what we do. You simply ask, you get people together, you get an outside facilitator, doesn't have to be a paid consultant, you get an outside facilitator, but what you do is you collect feedback in writing, not public discussion, but individually they write it on pieces of paper, and what they're doing is they're opening up their head and their heart, and what they're answering is, what are you mad about, what are you sad about, and what are you glad about working here as a part of this board? When you think about every month coming here and doing what you do, what are you mad about with the way this board works? Or what are you mad about with the way the chairman interacts with us? Or what are you mad about or sad about or glad about? And you guide them to think about those things that make them sad, make them mad, and make them glad. And what you do is you have them write it all down on a piece of paper, but then the outside person collects all those pieces of paper and types it all up and looks for trends. But the concept is, no one ever sees the handwriting of the participants and nobody puts their names on their pieces of paper. So you collect that and that's all laid out in the book for everybody. But the concept is this mad, glad, sad is only the emotional side, but it's the way to start. It's what opens the door. But here's where the $150,000 of free consulting comes in. When you ask the people to then you say, okay, great. We all can identify the things that frustrate us and, and all frustrate us but now let's talk about solutions. So then what you do is you say, now I'd like you to take a piece of paper and I would like you to write down, when you think about the chairman of the board, you think about the committee leaders, you think about all of us as a group collectively, what do we as mature grown adult members of this board, what do we need to stop doing, start doing and continue doing? And the brain science magic on this is when you ask a human being who's now emotively unloaded and they're feeling pretty good about just getting all that off their chest. And by the way, about 10% of the data that you collect from the Maglad Sad will be surprises to the chairman. If they're really an ostrich with their head buried in the sand, 20%, 25% of the data will be a surprise to them. And it'll sound like this. They'll go, I didn't know that they were that upset. <laughs> well, we've only been talking about that every single meeting. When you leave and get in your car, we wait for you to leave, and then we all complain about it behind your back. So, Maglad's <laughs> Break room, yeah. <laughs> stop, Stay start, continue. the water cooler. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So then stop, start, continue is where you transform the organization to answer your question, Russ. If you could simply get organizations, even if it was just the C-suite group, the top senior leaders, to simply sit on a – twice a year and go, what do you and I, what do we need to stop doing, start doing, continue doing to make this a better place? Now, if you want to go and really transform the nonprofit organization, go ask your volunteers. What do the leaders, what are the leaders of this nonprofit need to stop doing, start doing, continue doing? They're not going to see your handwriting. They're not going to see your name. Just tell us what we need to stop doing, start doing. Ask volunteers, what are you sad about, mad about, and glad about? And when that data comes pouring in and you collect it all and you type it up and you look at it, what I typically do is just type it up in uh, PowerPoint slides and then you can show, look, 18 people out of 34 said we don't start meetings on time. Mm -hmm. 27 out of 34 people said there's no accountability here and there's um, 
three people that have so much favoritism and nepotism that they get away with murder. Okay, well, now you got people surfacing the difficult issue, right? <laughs> now, just like everything, like you talked about, Russ, with process, you need to create a safety net. Obviously, you need to keep people safe. You don't want people to get hurt and have stir up, you know, trigger events and trigger emotions and all that. So there's a, a best practice on how to do it. But if we could just get people, because here's where I'm going with this. Anybody listening, if you could just do this in your marriage, what do I need to stop doing, start doing or continue doing as a husband to be a better husband? What do I need to stop doing or start doing this summer to be a better father for my 13-year-old boy who's really thriving and doing exceptionally well with Taekwondo? Well, how can I better support him? Well, I need to start making more time to go to Taekwondo practices with him. I need to start more consistently practicing with him at home. Great example. The other day I went and bought a 70-pound body bag to hang from the ceiling. How long do you think, how many months do you think I've been thinking about buying that body bag for my son? Well, when you do stop, start, that's when you get off your duff, you get in the car, you drive to Target or wherever, and you buy your $70 body bag. The thing that's interesting, body bags today are now only $60. How many times do boards complain about it's too expensive, we don't have the money? What's incredible is you go to your local, using this as a metaphor, go to your local Goodwill store, somebody wealthy will have already given away, donated their body bag back to the local Goodwill store. It'll be hanging in the corner. You go to the Goodwill and you say, could I buy that for $10? So one of the principles that I try to help organizations, there's always a way. There's always a way. There is always a way. And then the other thing is no, N-O equals on, O-N. Kind of like an anagram, no equals O-N, on. When you say no to things, it keeps what matters most on. You stay focused on the thing that matters. So the one thing is the one thing is a great principle. So when you start, I'm really going back to Hugh's question and yours together, which is safety, courtesy, show, and efficiency was a way of trying to figure out the language. And I think that's what everybody's picking up now. And I really hope they'll go back and listen to this or get the transcript. A lot of what they're hearing tonight for me is about language. Mm -hmm. And I know this is huge for the two of you as well. Well, but it's really about language. It is. And underneath communications is relationships. Mm -hmm. And um, you've, you've covered a lot of territory here and you've answered uh, the questions we've posted, except I'd like what? to hear on this, this, um, this meeting thing, there's a fifth unposted question out there. Mm -hmm. um, I like this, this uh, uh, mad, glad, sad, stop, start. Um, that's similar to some of the tools we use, but that's distinctively different and mm -hmm. pretty, pretty, pretty brilliant. You, um, will you give us the link for that free uh, book that you're going to give us, the ebook? Oh, sure. If um, people just simply want to go to talk with Stephen, S-T-E-V-E-N, talkwithsteven.com and what they can do is they can go in as if they were scheduling an appointment and just put in the comment box that they would like a copy of the the book and I'll simply send them the ebook of both jumpstart your creativity and success from the inside out they're not going to be enrolled in any email list they're not going to be getting autoresponder messages from me I don't do all that stuff um, I don't even have opt-in boxes on my websites so if they just go to talkwithsteven.com It'll show that they need to book an appointment. They can book the appointment. We can cancel it later. All I want them to do is go through that and simply 
make a note that they wanted to, if they want to ask a question, that's great. I'll get right back to them. But then they can also just say, send me the books and I'll send them success from the inside out and jumpstart your creativity. And if you want to share with us any of that stuff, we'll be um, sure. happy Absolutely. to do that. So this, this last one's a real zinger. <clears throat> I wish you lived closer. We could have coffee and talk more. <coughs> um, I wish I lived closer one way or the other. Um, there's this thing about meetings and making decisions together. Mm-hmm. And um, one of my eBooks out there is uh, conducting power pack meetings. So I just, I approach it like a conductor builds ensemble. And so mm-hmm. meetings in, in my world are the number one killer of high functioning teams, yep. but they're also the number one empowerment vehicle uh, for for high performing teams, and we can go either way. And the difference is how the leader builds the culture through the DNA of rehearsal together. We rehearse for excellence, or we rehearse for for mediocrity, or even less. So, mm-hmm. give us a, um, the Stephen snapshot of of uh, decision makings, and, and what are some of the things that are important in meetings to you? Sure, sure. So. To deliver on a promise I made a minute ago, what I would say is a transition to that. There's mad, glad, sad, stop, start, continue as a, as a process piece. The one that I want to give everybody as a gift that you can share with your loved ones, but also just for yourself, is a mini version, a little tiny version, but powerful version of mad, glad, sad, stop, start, continue, is, you. let me ask you a question. If you could change any one thing immediately about the way you're spending your private time. You used to have a hobby and you don't have a hobby anymore. So, okay, let me ask you a question. If you could change any one thing immediately about how you're spending your private time, what would you change? And so that question is a really powerful question. And so I use that to answer your question because one of the best practices in meetings for me is being able to facilitatively know when to ask that question. Okay, I hear everybody complaining about the payroll system and the on-time clock system and everybody's frustrated about paychecks not being accurate. Okay, so if we could change any one thing immediately, what would we change? So that's a that's an example of a very powerful facilitative question. Number two, I believe, and believe it or not, Cleveland Clinic of all places was my client for six years and they did this. Standing meetings, no chairs, no food, and no meetings longer than an hour unless justified by the seniors, right? So there's some process pieces there too. But the one that I would share that's critically important, this is my life work, it's John Cotter's life work, the Harvard University management professor, is, and he wrote a book actually called Urgency. But John Cotter is one of the really sage um, experts in change management. And in his original books around change, he identified the nine key principles that you have to, they're levers basically, that you have to press these levers if you're gonna be successful at lasting change. And so what I would share with you for the time we have today on this call is this, board leaders who are able, remember people don't argue, I'll back up, people don't argue with their own data. So when you ask great questions, and when you ask, okay, so if you could change any one thing immediately, what would you change? Now you start to get a group moving forward, but here's the big thing. One of the secret tools in the toolbox is if your group does not have a, if they do not have a crystal clear understanding of the urgency of addressing this issue or the urgency of the need for change, 
saying that differently. If they do not understand clearly the pain of continuing to do the status quo, then you are, according to John Cotter's life work, you are, and I've experienced it myself in 20 years of change management consulting, you are missing the single most powerful lever for success that is research-based and proven. If the leaders do not establish amongst themselves within that board group, get on the same page and have consensus around the urgency, the why is it so urgent that we have to fix the payroll system? Why is it that paychecks have to get mailed out on time? If they cannot get together about what the urgency is and the why behind that urgency, they're missing the fundamental most powerful lever that you can start with to effectively drive change. So in meetings, one of the most, I'll leave, I'll wrap up with this, one of the most powerful things, and it's just a tool that I've come across over the years, is three Ds. And I want to hear, I'd love to hear as we wrap up, Hugh, your thoughts on this as well as you, Russ, because you all dedicated and as you wrote the book um, on this. One little tool that I've seen that's been helpful is there are three Ds. D is in David, there's three Ds. And so it could be a part of a meeting, so it could be the first 20 minutes. Then the last 40 minutes is another type of meeting, or you could actually have just one meeting with just one D, but here's what it sounds like. So there's discovery meetings, which is where last month seven people went off with their different topics to go research. This is typical in boards. And then they come back and you're going to dedicate 20 minutes and each person is going to have two minutes to discover or talk about what they discovered out there in the universe. Another example would be distribution, which is then, okay, you went out and gathered this, we heard this, but now let's distribute amongst ourselves what do we need to do, leveraging the expertise in this room and all of that, to take all the discovery information, what do we need to distribute amongst ourselves to move us forward to get to what? A decision. And so what I find, and, and you all I know have a passion about this too, is whether it's for-profit or non-profit, it doesn't matter. I believe personally the reason meetings suck is nobody wants to make a decision. The reason people don't want to make a decision is because if we don't make a decision, then I don't have to be held accountable for any expectation after the meeting's over. So if we can then subconsciously just keep this little ball bouncing, well, you know, we're going to have a meeting next month. When we, I know we're doing dinner next month with the board. What we'd like to do is have you come in 20 minutes early and we're going to have a little quick meeting about the meeting that we had last time with the meeting. And then we're going to talk about what meeting we need to book for that meeting because nobody wants to make a decision. So discovery, you focus everybody. Okay. What are we discovering? What are we learning? What do you all know? Okay, great. What do we need to distribute amongst each other now that we've done that discovery process? And that's a different type of meeting. And then the last one is, okay, now it's time to make a decision. The decision piece, hopefully, is not the first time that the group is bringing up the urgency conversation. So to help everybody with a concrete technique, it would be, what happens if we do nothing? I love this question. You want to see silence in a boardroom? They'll surface an issue, and they're all got their human, and their eyebrows are going. You go, great. So let me ask you a question. What happens if we do nothing? And what you'll see in that moment is people will either – come fighting for their cause or people will look back and go, honestly, um, you know what? I think we got bigger. Honestly, I think we have bigger fish to fry. We got a lot more. I mean, the bur you know, Rome is burning. I don't think we need to worry about that. You're talking about, you know, golf course issues. 
and the grass on the green at the golf course, I think we got bigger issues. Boom. Thank you. By simply asking at one question. So if we do nothing, what happens? It helps people stop and pause. And this is the other thing that I have a passion about is people don't let boards sit in quiet. Oh, you, you, you hit that a minute ago, the silence piece. Yeah. Yeah, it's, power it's, power. it's powerful. I'm a big fan of silence. I mean, it's, kind of, it's part of my meditative routine in the morning. Mm -hmm. uh, rather than using something guided, I, I use silence a lot of times. It's, it's really powerful. And I've sat in meetings and when uh, silence makes people uncomfortable. They're not used to being, they're used to doing. And so they feel like they have to do something. <laughs> so that's, I consider silence a, a, a power tool. Yeah. And um uh, there is one question, and I, I think you may have covered it, and I don't know, but but David Dunworth posed a question, uh, and he said that we use a, uh, okay, uh, that's not, that's a comment. He said we used a similar uh, process with employees in large organizations we call 360-degree feedback system, and I like this very much. And he had posed a question about a smaller organization. And he says, how can smaller social enterprises instill that spirit you're discussing into a, into a tiny nonprofit that is struggling to find effective board members? Okay. And the first part of that question was, how can they instill which spirit, which piece of it are they talking about? Well, I think, because uh, he asked this question, uh, uh, and we were talking about motivating board members. That was at the point we were talking about uh, uh, motivating board members. Okay. So, so what I okay, perfect. So what I would do one one is do you know the why? If you look at your most successful, most um, invigorated, most excited people that are supporting you, whether it's donors, community leaders, influencers, or board members. Do you know the why for each of them? And are you looking for the distinctions of the patterns? So here's what it could sound like. If they do that homework as a small nonprofit, they could say, you, know, you might find it interesting, you're at lunch with somebody and you're trying to get them on board or you want them to, to plug in, you say, you might find it interesting that 40% of our raving fans, the people most committed to this organization, the thing that they're really drawn by, drawn to this is what we're doing with policymakers to change the healthcare code as it relates to geriatric patients. Mm -hmm. And that's really what's driving them. And you go, wow, the fact that you know that 40% of your people that are most engaged or most excited about this one thing, at least you now are putting a voice, safety, courtesy, show, efficiency. You're at least starting to put a language to what are those fundamental building blocks? That's one. Number two though, what I would say just quickly off the cuff on that is do you have your own story mm. clear enough? And here's what I would, this is the piece I would talk about. I'll do it this way. I'm going to do two things simultaneously here and I'll just do it very quickly. Imagine if at the beginning of our talk today, Instead of me talking about my past and what I did with Disney and all of that, 
Imagine if we had started this talk tonight this way. Stephen, where are you headed and what are you most passionate about when it comes to nonprofit boards? Well, now I'll share with you what Dennis McAtee, the drama-free teams expert, what he would say is he's on a mission right now between now and 2020 to create 10,000 drama-free teams in healthcare in hospitals because he's about to launch drama-free nursing and he wants to help nurses, the largest department in hospitals, eliminate their drama. So what I would share is this. Imagine if we could focus on where we're headed, what's the goal, what are we trying to do, what's the result, and bring that story forward along with consistently seek out guest contact, safety, courtesy, show, and efficiency. And now you've got something more compelling and you're, and you're drawing people to it. The other thing I just wanted to take a moment is imagine is a very powerful word. It's called an imagine statement. Imagine in just three short years, we eradicate polio from the continent. Think about, everybody uses the JFK example of going to the moon. Why was that so profound? He cast a vision that was so big, almost like, how are we going to do that? So what I would share with you is when people ask me, I used to run mastermind groups for small business owners and home services, plumbing, electrical, and maid service. And I need everybody to hear this. I'm not selling this service. This is what I'm doing now. I'm giving you this as an imagined statement. People would say, Stephen, what do you do? I understand you work with small business owners. And I really hope people are listening and translating what I'm about to say as a tool. It's a, it's a framework for you. Somebody says, oh, so Stephen, I understand you work with small business owners. What do you do? Imagine, now you're a small business owner, and I respond. Imagine doubling your sales, tripling your net profit, and retiring in three to five years. Guaranteed. Imagine doubling your sales, tripling your net profit, and retiring in three to five years. Guaranteed. Here's what happened. I interviewed 1,700 small business owners in plumbing, electrical, and maid service in 2004. And discover was that the thing they wanted was that they worked hard but never made any money. They worked hard but didn't have a company that was growing. They didn't have enough profit. They wanted to retire. They wanted to turn their business over to their kids. So if you translate that, figure out what it is that you're trying to do, focus on that future, and then figure out what is your imagined statement. Imagine eradicating polio the next, or think about the Gates Foundation with mosquitoes and mosquito nets, right? Imagine eradicating malaria by 2010, you know, by 2020 or whatever. The other thing I've modeled for everybody was the power of a pause. And that's just that moment for leaders is next time you run a meeting, folks, let me ask you a question. And all you do when you're sitting at that board table is look down, break eye contact from them, say, folks, let me ask you a question. If you could change any one thing immediately about what we're doing here right now about this golf tournament, I mean, is this really the best way for us to raise money this year? Is the 40th golf tournament in a row? 
or is there another way? Guys, if you could change anything immediately about how we're raising money for this organization, what would it be? Well, now all of a sudden, you're going to have the audience in the palm of your hand. I turn it over to you, Hugh. I'd love to get your reaction to some of this. Oh, I, this is profound stuff. We could talk the rest of the night. Um, I want to do a wrap here. Um, and I wanted to, I'll come back to you at the end, um, Stephen, and let you, uh, I was trying to capture that organization. What would, that's one of the most useful things that you've said all night. You said a lot of great stuff. That one is an eye opener. Um, I want to let you think for a minute as a parting parting wish, parting thought, parting tip for people. And Russ, you have any, uh, we're a little over time, but that's all right. You have any uh, closing comments you want to make? And then I want to make a couple of commercial announcements. Uh, no, I don't have anything to add. Uh, I accept my thanks. And I wanted to make sure that uh, we got to David's question. Loads of stuff and I took copious notes. I've been busy taking notes. I've learned a lot from you. Uh, I look forward to, to talking with you again in the future. And uh, it's just been marvelous. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been an honor. Stephen, it's a, it's a gift to have you with us there. Uh, Russell is very, uh, I have to be careful. You know, he, he shows me up all the time. So I have to, <laughs> to be careful. He's taking really good notes here. He, he has a way of summarizing key points and putting them in. David Dunworth, who answered the question, was on this series a while back. And he had uh, one of our great interviews as well. And thank you for being on here, David and Doyle, Karen. Links, Peter, Sandy. Um, we have uh, we have a hospital admin, a retired CEO that's on the uh, on the on the. Um, um, I just closed out the Facebook. I can't tell who was there anymore. But there were a whole bunch of people out there, and I wanted to shout out to all those people watching us on Facebook. It's good to have a, an energy field around uh, improving what we all do together. Our sponsor for this podcast is United Methodist Church Cyber Campus. It's UMC Cyber, C-Y-B-E-R Campus. It's online learning, and it's um, a lot of high-powerful programs, a lot of really great courses and degrees, video learnings, coachings. It's, um, it's, a, it's a gateway to discovery, and we know, Stephen, if the organization is going to do better, we need to do better ourselves. And so... Um, as we as we wrap up here and close out this interview, what parting thought would you like to leave with people? Folks, life is short. And I just turned 50 years old and I have a 13-year-old son, an eight-year-old dog, and a puppy, and a 52-year-old wife. And what I would invite everybody to think about beyond all the cliches of why are we here and what are we doing and what's the meaning of life beyond all of that, I would just make it a little bit simpler. It's 2017 in 2027, 10 years from now, summer of 2027, 10 years from now, If you're still with us here on this earth, God willing, as true as day, you'll be standing there and you'll be alive and you'll be living your life. Here's my simple question. Between now and then, how do you want to spend it?
between now and how do you want to spend it do you want to spend it as the person who gets consumed by all the things in the media and the news and the press and everything that's wrong with the country and everything that's going on or do you want to be that light of hope and be a role model for others but even beyond that just live the best life you can live so my question for you is between now and next summer one year from now how do you want to spend it because he's going to have this podcast next june and you'll be on here next june after a year's worth of podcasts so give yourself the gift today or tomorrow and simply think about how do you want to spend it because if you do that that's time well worth spending Good words, sir. This nonprofit exchange leaves with those really good thoughts. Uh, Russ, thanks for being here. Stephen, thanks for sharing such great wisdom tonight. Thank you. Enjoy. Thank you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.